have a Bible and you want to read where we're going to take a reading, uh, you can turn to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 29. And uh, I'm going I'm to mix it up on you today. Um, I'm going to use a different version this morning of the Bible for one reason. I'm not going to do this every Sunday, uh, but as I was trying to read the King James Version in this, there was a lot of difficulty in expressing what needed to be, and so I read it in a different version, and it was more clear, and so for this morning alone, I'm going to read it in the New American Standard Version, and um, I hope you'll be forbearing with that. It's just a little more clear. And um, like I said, I don't plan to continue doing that. But I'm also this morning going to kind of do things a little differently um, in presenting this. I'm not going to read a text and then give you a title and then preach. Um, There's a story that's going to unfold in our scripture reading today. And I'm going to read a little and talk and read a little more and have you turn different places. And um, This is one of those... Stories that as I was reading this this week um, has just affected my heart and very often when I try to preach upon something that has affected me greatly, uh, it doesn't come out like it came in. Um, and I'm sure you've had that experience before where something's really shook you and you try to tell somebody about it and they say, that's it, <laughs> Right? And uh, maybe that's what today will be. Um, I pray it will be more than that. Um, And to really enumerate the points that the Lord has placed in my mind or in in thoughts, um, you need to know a little bit of history. And so instead of reading it, I'm going to tell it to you first, and then we're going to read here. Um, So for hundreds of years, um, God prepared in the Old Testament a people. That became known as Israel. And through a series of a lot of events, very significant events and very significant people, um, God made them a nation with a land. And they had kings, three of them in particular, um, Saul, David, and Solomon. And while they were kings for three kings, they were called the United Kingdom. They were all one one kingdom. Then after Solomon, his two sons divided the kingdom. And one was called the Northern Kingdom and retained the name Israel. And the other one became the Southern Kingdom and was given the name Judah. Jerusalem was in Judah, in the southern part. And when you read through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, um, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, the majority, or if you read most of the Old Testament prophets, it's usually taking place during this period of time after the kingdom has been divided. And so you've got to ask yourself questions when you read the prophets. Who is he speaking to? Is it the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Who's the king? Because that period of time lasted a really long time. And so this morning, to understand what's going on and the significance of this, This is 215 years after Solomon. So, 
There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom now for 215 years have been different nations. And have completely functioned differently in the northern kingdom, Israel, from the time that they divided from Solomon, has had evil kings the whole time. They had approximately 20 kings spanning hundreds of years, and they were all evil. Judah, the southern kingdom, was schizophrenic, right? They'd have a good king, and then two or three bad kings, and then another good king, and then an okay king, right? One that in some ways did right, and one in other ways that didn't do enough. So where we're at is, in this reading is we're in the middle. So there's about 20 kings, and the king we're going to read about is king number 13. His name was Hezekiah. And he's the king of this southern kingdom. Okay? His dad's name was Ahaz. His dad's name was Jotham. So I just think of it at J-A-H. J, Jotham was the grandpa. Ahaz was the son. Hezekiah was the grandson. And this lasted, so Jotham reigned in Judah for 16 years. Now, to try to put that in perspective for us, George W. Bush was president 16 years ago. And that feels like all the cultural events that have happened, all the different leadership, all the different world events, in many ways, from a political standpoint, the culture at that time feels very different than the culture today. There's been a lot of change. Jotham was king for 16 years. Then his son, Ahaz, was king for another 16 years. Okay, so if we stacked 32 years, what is it? Probably Reagan was the president or George H.W. H. Bush, somewhere back there. It really feels a long time, politically speaking, and the events of what was important in politics and what our debt and who were the big world players on the world stage. 32 years ago, it feels like a long time politically. So the grandpa, Jotham, was a eh king. It tells us in chapter 27, and you don't have to turn there, but it tells us in chapter 27 that he did some things pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, like his father named Uzziah, but he never went to the temple of the Lord. So the way I understand that, using other parts of the Bible that speak of his kingship and other kingships around him is he tried to do the right moral thing, but he was not adamant about serving the Lord the way the Lord wanted. He wasn't devoted to it. It wasn't in his heart. It was just kind of passively in his actions. Well, as is commonly the case, those type of things degenerate in the next generation. So if you have a parent who's halfway dedicated to church, it's a surprise to exactly no one that their children are less dedicated. And that's the case not just in regards to our affiliation with church and religion, but any affiliation. If a dad is only a half worker and doesn't apply himself, it's not a surprise when his kids are lazy. And so Ahaz 
raises up and he's an evil king. And we'll talk more about him in a few minutes. And then on the scene comes Hezekiah in chapter 29. And it's a beam of light. And it's quite extraordinary to consider within the context that you have an uh king, you have a terrible king, and then out of this comes a 25-year-old man. Now, 25 is not old. At 25, you're not hardly fit to be a member of the House of Representatives, let alone the President of the United States. You're not qualified. Because the idea is you lack the maturity and the leadership and the respect of others to faithfully and to ably fulfill that job. And yet Hezekiah is an anomaly. And we're going to read about that here in the first 12 verses of this reading. It says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1, reminding you I have a different version than what you do. So if you just want to end up listening, I think it'll be clear to you, even if you don't follow along in yours. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Now I want to pause for a moment. I'm going to keep doing this as we go through this. So notice, here's what's taking place. If you go back a chapter and you read in chapter 28, verse 22, it says this about his evil king Ahaz, his evil father. It says, In verse 22, now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. For he sacrificed the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and said, Because the gods of the king of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they became the the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, And he closed the door of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. So now see what's going on during Ahaz, Hezekiah's father's reign. Syria has attacked Judah. And Syria, this neighboring nation, is being successful. And they're prospering. And so Ahaz looks at this nation and says, you know what? Maybe if I serve their gods, then I'll be prosperous as well. So he takes and he begins to take things out of the house of the Lord, which had been set aside to please God. And he begins to use those things to serve other gods. Now I'll pause for a moment and say this. Everything about you is set aside for the Lord. You, everything about you, your intellect, your money, your time, your energy, your personality, everything about you that God created specifically is meant to honor him. And King Ahaz begins to pick and choose those things that he wants to use to honor other gods. And if it's honoring another God, it cannot honor the one true God. I'll let you make the application there. He then closes the house of the Lord. So they don't have these feasts that God had commanded them to have in the Old Testament. 
They don't gather and, and offer sacrifices to him as was pleasing to the Lord during the time of Moses. None of that's going on. And so when we pick up in chapter 29, and the Bible says at 25 years old, notice what it says about the time frame when Hezekiah did this. He's 25, he takes the kingship, and in the very first month, he opens the house of the Lord. Very often, it's a symbolic thing when we have a new president. Their first hundred days, what are they going to do? And so, if you'll notice in these upcoming debates that we're going to have here in a year or so, whenever the candidates get up, that will be questions for the moderators. What in the first hundred days, what are you going to do? Or sometimes they'll even get down to where they say, on the first day, what are you going to do? And it's meant to be this sign of, this is the, this is the priority Well, let me tell you, on the first day of Hezekiah's reign, he said, open the temple of God. This is where the priority of God and his people lies. It's right here. That's a pretty big, bold thing for a 25-year-old who for 32 years they've neglected the house of God. Pretty bold thing to do. But Hezekiah just keeps pushing forward. He doesn't stop there. He gathers together all the leaders of the house of the Lord. He calls all the Levites, all those men who were responsible for carrying out the work of God in the temple. He calls them together and he says, I want to speak to all of you. This is where it begins. And what he's going to do in these next few verses is he's going to charge the leaders of God's people to begin to do things right. Now, listen, there are times. So, and I've told you this before, when I was called to pastor here, and people would ask, you know, what, um, how big's the church? When I, when I tell my coworkers and people, how big's the church? And, and so I would say, I don't know, 75 people, 100 people. I, I don't know how many people come on a regular Sunday morning. And, and they would kind of look at me like, oh, I'm so sorry. Right? Like it's so small. And they say, well, maybe you can go there and cause it to grow. That's almost everyone that I would talk to. That's their focus. And so even today, if you talk to people about the house of God and going to church and you ask them about their church, almost the the most important thing to everyone is trying to quantify just how important we are by how many people we have. But listen, if you have all the people in the world and you don't have the Lord in his temple, what good is it? And so here, King Ahaz caused the people together. And listen, we have, and and you know this if you're a member of this church, we have a lot of people who are supposedly members of this church that never darken the doors of this church. And if they've made a commitment, not just to their brothers and sisters, but to the Lord, they ought to honor that commitment. But regardless of what they do, what we must be concerned about primarily is not what they're doing, not who is and who is not coming, not how our church would be better off or worse off if these people or if those people came. But what we need to worry about is what is going on right here, right now with the utensils that God has here in this moment. Hezekiah calls the leaders and he says, come forward. I have some things that I want to bring before you today for consideration. And it involved the things that had been neglected. Now, I want to point out, it was not singularly things which had been perverted, but things which had been neglected. And I want to make that distinction because our minds often 
pacify us over neglect and justify neglect because it's not perversion. But listen, neglect in the eyes of God is sin. And perversion in the eyes of God is sin. And God does not dwell with sin. And if the purpose of gathering is that God's people might come in a united fashion and in our unworthiness plead for God's presence, then it is of, it behooves us to at all costs remove sin from our gathering. We don't want to find protection in saying, well, all we're doing is neglecting the house of God, or at least we're not perverting it. No, I don't want to be like Jotham, and I don't want to be like Ahaz. I want to live in the kingship, under the kingship of Hezekiah. He calls all of those Levites in. And in verses 5, I'm just going to read it. You have to bear with me today. He says this, listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord. Oh, you don't know how, how big of a deal this is. For 32 years, it had been perverted. For 32 years, the priests are not coming in and doing things that honor the Lord. For 32 years, it is not a priority, the things that take place in the house of God. And this king comes, and he says, gather together. And he gathers all the people together. And he says, it's time to make things right with God in the temple of God. It's a big day in Jerusalem this day. Oh, but it's going to get a lot bigger. He calls the leaders forward. He tells them, and you can read it, and I'm not going to read it all because it just, it ta- it's going to take too long. Verses 1 through 10, he said, it's time for us. The first thing we've got to do is we've got to come into the house of the Lord and cleanse it. See, here's what his father Ahaz had done. He had stripped down what the, God had designed the temple to be. So many of the things that God had said, this is what you need to have in my temple to honor me. Ahaz came, he stripped all those things down, and he gave them to the enemies that the enemies not, might not attack them. So he tried to bribe and pay them off, and he used the good things of God to bribe and pay off the enemies that they might not attack them, rather than depending on God to protect them. And so Ahaz, then Ahaz comes and he begins to put idol gods within the temple of the Lord. Or not within the temple, throughout the nation, and he would go to these different locations and he would worship these idol gods. And so Hezekiah, his son, 25 years old, his dad's dead, he comes in, he gathers all these Levites together, and he said, It's time to go back to the house of God and take out everything that has made it unholy. It's time to repent of our sin, it's time to make things right. The title of our message this morning, I didn't tell you. Looking beyond the fear of change. Looking beyond the fear of change. Here, Hezekiah says it's time to cleanse this thing. You can read it in verses 1 through 10 exactly what it tells them, but my favorite was verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says this in verse 12. Then the Levites arose. Oh, I love that. I love that. 
he comes and he preaches this brand new message 30, 32 years after the house of the God and, and perhaps even longer than that, but 32 years it's been neglected. 32 years it's been perverted. And he gives them this charge and he says, it is time for the house of God to, be, to become what God had originally sanctified it to be. And the Levites, they don't need to talk with one another. They don't need to coordinate. They don't need a business meeting. The Levites arose and they began to purge the house of the Lord. They began to change. Do you know how long it took them? 16 days. 16 days. It had been perverted for thir- and neglected for 32 years. And in 16 days, they reestablished what it was meant to be. You know, that's one of the wonderful things about the Lord. It was alluded to this morning already in testimonies. Sometimes what we think and what Satan convinces us of is if, if, you've been, if you've got secret sin in your life, if you neglect, if your pattern of life has not been to be where you need to be with the Lord, if your actions and your attitude and your lifestyle is incongruent with the ways of the Lord, what Satan in our own sinful minds tells us is it's going to have to take this gradual, long change because I've been doing it for so long. And so if it's taken me this long to develop this sinful lifestyle, then certainly to change, it's going to at least take me half of that time. And yet notice here, for 32 years it's neglected, and in 16 days it's made right. They take all of those gods, they take all of those idols, they take it out to the place that was known as the place of the dump. And they destroyed those things, and they put it in a brook or in a river, and they sent it down river. That it might forever be gone. It's not coming back. You know, in our lives, we can repent in our lives. And then we can destroy the instruments that help us sin. You understand what I'm saying? Like there there are sins that you and I may need to get rid of. But there are instruments of sin that help us to sin. And here's when you know somebody's serious about repentance. Is not when they have the idols remaining and they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take these idols down and put them in the closet. Well, then you're not serious about sin and you're not truly repenting. You feel remorse. You feel guilt. And so you're putting it in the closet where it's still accessible. And many kings of Judah did that. They would take them down, but they would not destroy them. That's what I love about King Hezekiah. He says to the Levites, go out and destroy those things. And send them down the brook of Kidron. And let them forever be gone. Never to come back. Don't pacify your own conscience. And I'm going to let you make application of all these truths today because I don't have time to. Don't pacify your conscience by putting an idol in a closet. Feels good for a while, but I can almost guarantee you'll get it back out. And if you don't get it back out, your children will get it out. That's the very thing that happens throughout these times of these kings. King Hezekiah, after the leaders destroy all that, and this is all found in in chapter 29 that we're reading, and I'm not going to be able to read it all, he calls all of Judah together. He says, let's come and let's sacrifice to the Lord. 
So something they had not done, like generations. So even probably my generation would not have experienced this at my age. I'm 35 years old. And so they probably had not, my age group, experienced this. And perhaps if you're in your mid-40s or early 50s, there's a good chance that you experienced that, but you were really young and you don't remember it. That's how much it had passed by. And Hezekiah said, gather all the citizens from Judah and let's bring sacrifices to ask God to purge us of our sin. And I don't have time to explain why that's not relevant today, but he says, bring them. And so the people do with joy. And if you look in verse 31, all the people are there. And the leaders have worshiped the Lord and the leaders have brought sacrifices to purge their own sin. And then it says the people come. And notice in verse 32, they bring 70 bulls and 100 lambs and 200 lambs. And then there's another wave of things. And they bring in 600 bulls and 300 sheep. And they're offering this as a sacrifice to God. And it tells us later in this chapter, it says, there were so many animals and so few priests that they had to ask other people for help to sacrifice these things. There are times in the scripture when we talk about generosity. Right? Talked about this on Wednesday night one night. And I'm not just talking about money, but I'm not excluding money. Generosity. That there are many times in the scriptures where there is such generosity being compelled from people's hearts that the people who are on the receiving end say, Whoa, that is way too much. You're bringing in such an abundance to give to the Lord. We cannot handle the abundance. And this is one of those occurrences where they bring in such an abundance. And the way I think of it is there were many faithful people in Judah for all of those years that were eager to have things restored right. And I think I'm looking at a lot of those people this morning. I think a lot of you, some of you are those people who have said, you know what? I have been dissatisfied with the spiritual condition, not only of our world, not only of our country, not only of our state, not only of our association of churches around here. I have been dissatisfied with the spiritual condition of our church. I'm not happy. And I haven't been for decades of time. I want to see God's power. I want to see a spirit of love that extends beyond these walls. I want to know that my brothers and sisters care. I want to know that my brothers and sisters carry burdens. I want lost people who come into the house of God to experience the deep conviction that I witnessed with my own eyes in former years. I want it, but I'm afraid because we've been in this lull for 32 years. And there's so many sins and there's such complication in relationships and there's such a history in the past. It's going to take monumental change. Hezekiah, I look at there being a good group of people. And then Hezekiah, the leader, gets up. That's why whenever you have leaders in a church, it's so important, if you're a leader of this church, to stand up and lead the church. If you're a leader in your home, stand up and lead. Don't be afraid to set priorities. Don't be afraid of your children and your spouse for saying, this is what is right and this is what we're going to do to honor God. And if you won't come along with me, I'll do it alone. But me in my heart, I am going to worship and honor God. I'm going to serve his kingdom the way that his kingdom is, is the way that he is compelling me to serve. 
passive, effeminate men have no place in the kingdom of God to lead. Men that will stand up and lead. Here, Hezekiah calls these men. And I look at it as these good people who for years have seen neglect. But in their hearts, they've wanted to sacrifice. And every time the year of the Passover comes around, their hearts yearn within them. And they say, I remember when. I remember when I would bring that lamb. And if I had a lamb to bring today, it would be that one. But there's no place to bring it. And there's no priest to offer it. And have any of it. And finally, King Hezekiah rises up. And the Levites rise up as men. They consecrate the house of God. They said, bring your sacrifices. And those men and women who knew what was right, and those men and women who yearned in their hearts to sacrifice every year said, I'm not bringing one lamb and I'm not bringing two lambs. I'm bringing as many lambs as I can afford to sacrifice because I have neglected the house of God. And I want him to be honored. If I can make up for what I have failed to honor him with, then I will gladly take the loss today. Look at verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. I love that. I love that last verse. They didn't pass it in business meeting. They didn't spend six months planning it. It came about suddenly. There's been a lot of discussion here lately about our our schedule. We have a very busy schedule at a church. We have three revivals a year. I'll leave it up to you whether you think that's too many or not. I think that's too many coordinated revivals. I don't think it's enough uncoordinated revivals. Don't you love it when it comes about suddenly? It gets pretty boring when it's coordinated, doesn't it? It's pretty burdensome when it's coordinated all the time, doesn't it? But when it rises up organically because the people's hearts are hungering for God. And then people say, let's meet tomorrow night. Because I want more of the Lord. I want more power. I want more lost people to be saved. Let's meet tomorrow night. I can't get enough of that. This came about suddenly. Then Hezekiah does something unthinkable in the next chapter. Unthinkable, this next part, okay? So let me give you a little bit of history. If you go back to chapter 27, or excuse me, 28. I want you to turn there real quick because I want you to read this with your own eyes. Chapter 28, verse 8, okay? Speaking of the northern nation, it says this. The sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. So let me tell you what happens. So in verse 5, Judah is invaded by Syria. Okay? And they defeat. Syria defeats them. And they take some spoil. And as is common in all ages of time, they take some slaves. The northern kingdom, Israel, looks at Judah and says, wow, they're really weak. This would be a great time to attack them. So their own brothers, Israel, attacks Judah. And they go and they steal a bunch of their stuff. And they take 200,000 
women and children as slaves. And it's, it gets so bad when they come into the capital city of Israel, there's a prophet that meets them and says, hold on here, stop. We're already sinning and going to experience the judgment of our own sin. And you're adding this to our already large pile of sin. Send those Judeans back. We want no part of that sin. So here's what Hezekiah does in chapter 30. So they have just so think about this for a moment. In our nation, there is great tension between all races. Right? There's tension. Because currently at the southern border, there's things going on, and some people like it, and some people don't like it. And so there's this discomfort and this tension that happens. There's events that took place three or four hundred years ago. There are things that if you continue to dig and then you can talk about women, you can talk about any demographic, and there is always this. This, this tension that exists between different demographics for things which many have happened in the past. And here, on this occasion, Israel has done something in the recent past. Like, less than 16 years ago, they took 200,000 slaves from Judah and took them to Israel. Then King Hezekiah comes, he cleanses the temple. He calls the Levites to lead. He calls all of Judah and says, let's worship the Lord. But here's what he knows. It's incomplete. When God initially established the temple, when God initially set up this kingdom, when God initially called Abraham, he didn't call two tribes just in Judah. He called all of us. All of us were one. And so here's what Hezekiah does in chapter 30. He writes a letter to Israel. And he hires couriers to come. And to go to Israel and to broadcast to every tribe in Israel and say, you're invited to come to Jerusalem and worship. Now, I don't know about you. That blows my mind that he has the audacity to do that. Their enemies who had recently had slaves. Now, notice it said women and children is who they took. The most vulnerable the most ruthless, the darkest sin that you could commit, they had transgressed against Judah. And Hezekiah says, no, 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 but we got to put our differences aside and honor God the way he has called us to honor him. Now, I'm not, I've said this already. You make application to all that. In your own life, whether it's at a collective level, whether it's at an individual level, you make application. Let God make application in your heart to what he's speaking here. Because there's a whole lot of application to be made. So he sends these couriers. I'm going to jump in in verse 7 of chapter 30. This is halfway through the letter. Okay, So couriers are coming from each place. They're reading the letter. I don't have time to read it all. It says this in verse 7. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a whore as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord your brothers and your... 
and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So listen to verse 10. So the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So look what's going on here. They call. And the first thing that happens is people start mocking and making fun. So imagine a courier from Judah comes to your town. You have taken some of their children as slaves. You were the conquering nation. And the king sends the courier. He begins to read this letter out in the public. And he says, come and worship and let's honor the God the way God intended. And they say, that idiot. That what? No. And they mocked and they insulted. But all the while lurking in Israel, as those couriers are reading that, there are a few men and women that are saying, that's right. That's what we need to do. And so they load up their children, and they load up their wives, and they load up their sustenance, and they travel across that treacherous border to their enemy Judah to worship. They're not scared because it's right in the eyes of the Lord. He says, Judah was also given one heart. Oh, this is, this is pivotal right here. If the king says, let's invite the enemy that just enslaved us to come worship with us. And the people of Judah are saying, they're not coming here. They have raped. They have pillaged. They have mistreated us. I can still see their faces. I still know their names. My wife is still emotionally struggling. My kids have never gotten over this. They still wake up with horrors and tears and nightmares about what took place. But the Bible says Judah was given one heart to receive it. They all accepted it. It was true. And they followed Hezekiah. You know why sometimes good things don't happen? The cowards in the middle. Sometimes there are leaders that stand up, say what needs to be said, and it's met with silence. You know what's needed sometimes? When you hear somebody say something that's true and right, and you know that it's not necessarily going to be well-received, you know what you need to do sometimes? Stand up and say, amen. I agree. That's right. That needs to happen. And very often it comes, please hear me, very often it comes through the voice of babes. And we can say they're naive, and we can say they're overzealous, and we can say they're ignorant of all the dynamics that are involved. But listen, if they're speaking the truth, and God is in it, somebody stand up and say, amen to that. And where you lead, I'll follow. Here. Hezekiah, the people have one heart. I'm going to come to the end of this. This... uh, message this morning, but I got to read a couple more things. You just got to bear with me this morning. So here's what happens. Israelites come, Judah comes, but there's an unfortunate thing that occurs. You see, back in Moses' time, when they established the Passover, if you remember, he reset the calendar. Now this is going to be the first day of the month or the first month. This is the month of the celebration, right? Well, when Hezekiah becomes king, evidently it was already in the middle of the Passover, 
It had already passed that time of the calendar. Okay? So then they go in and they cleanse the temple and they, the Judeans come, they, they worship, and now it's the second month. And by law, you're only supposed to celebrate the Passover in the first month. But now it's the second month. So it's the wrong time to do this, even in accordance with the Levitical law. But Hezekiah calls them all anyway. And as he calls them and they begin to meet together, I want you to read chapter 30, verse 1 says this. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord of Israel. For the king and his princes and all assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second months since they could not celebrate it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Now skip down to verse 7 of chapter 30. It says this. He stands up before these people, Hezekiah does, and he begins to speak to all these different people. And it's the wrong month to worship. So, in short, it's illegal what they're doing. So, let me put that in our modern day way of thinking within our culture. There are things in this building, according to this church, that are taboo. They're illegal. You know what I'm saying? Like, there are things that we just don't do because we've never done. We don't have a revival in November, right? No, that's July. We have to have a revival in July. Why? Because for 150 years we've had a revival in July. I have no problem with a revival in July unless God is moving in November. And then if we have a Thanksgiving service and if we have Christmas, I don't care about Christmas plays. I care about the presence of God with us. That's the, all of those things are meant to be conduits, conduits to enter into our presence. They gather. He begins to talk in verse 7. He tells them. I'm in the wrong place here. This verse 13 is where we need to be. I think. Note verse 16. It says this. They stood at their stations after their customs according to the law of the Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood which they received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was unclean in order to consecrate them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulon, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. Because Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed or cleansed the people. The sons of Israel present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great joy. Oh, I love this. This is so good. So they're breaking all the rules. But their hearts are so desirous to please God. They first celebrate it in the wrong month. Then they recognize this. There's so many people coming here wanting to worship. We don't have enough priests to offer the blood. So we're just going to have to quickly allow the Levites, non-priests, to sacrifice too. Because we want everyone to come and to worship. 
And so you have the wrong month and the wrong people administrating. And it doesn't bother Hezekiah. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, it's not in the document, you know. It's not in the rule book. You know, we can't, it's not according to history. Brother so-and-so didn't think it this way. None of that mattered. Because what he knew is this, our hearts want to honor God. And so he prayed this very simple prayer, Lord, cleanse us and receive our sacrifice anyway. And the Bible says God did it. And for seven days, just as it had been prescribed, they rejoiced and they honored God. It looked so different. It had not looked this way in 215 years. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Look at verse 23. It gets better. Then the whole assembly decided to celebrate the feast another seven days. (laughs) Whoa. Right? So it's only prescribed for a certain amount of time by the law. Moses never extended it. David never extended it. Solomon never extended it. The law doesn't say anything about it. But the people's hearts are overflowing in worship and praise to God. And this dam of worship cannot be satisfied and emptied in seven days. So the people say, let's just do it again. (laughs) Let's just come worship again. I want to pause for a moment. Do you think those people had jobs? Do you think they had crops? Do you think they had responsibility? Do you think it cut their bottom line at their business? Just like you and I, it did the same. You ever let a garden go for 14 days? You ever let a gar- garden go for 14 days being 350 miles away? And then having to walk home? That's what these people did. Why? Because worship, especially neglected worship, generationally neglected worship, was long overdue. And their heart's compulsion would not stop them from worshiping. So they just celebrated for another week. I'd love to have been there, wouldn't you? You know one of the things about the minister school I love? Everybody wants to be here. That's probably my favorite thing about the minister school. You come to this Thursday night service, you can have 300, 350 people singing in a room, and they could be as dead as ever. You get 300 to 350 people in a room who every single one of them want to worship the Lord, that's this Thursday night. That's why people come from thousands of miles away. That's why I've known people to drive over 500 miles in one day and then drive back that night to go to work the next day just to be here because they're so hungry for worship. And everywhere they go and every church they enter, it's dead and it's empty and people are passive about their worship. But they can almost guarantee if they drive to this building on one day out of the year and they have this gathering, at least one time in the year there will be genuine worship take place. That's what the people did. They worshiped for another week. Look at verse 26, and I'm done. So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. 
It just fills my heart. He didn't say, this has not happened since the days of Ahaz. He didn't say, this has not happened since the days of Jotham or Uzziah. He didn't say, since Jeroboam. He said, since the days of Solomon. There had been nothing like this. So what did I do yesterday? I googled Solomon to Hezekiah. How long? 215 years. The temple had stood there. And priests had come and they had gone. And people had gathered on the Day of Atonement and on the Day of Passover. And they had done their feasts. And years came and years went. And they saw the jots and tittle of the law fulfilled in some kingships. Right? There were some kings that did the right thing. They didn't do the right thing. You understand what I'm saying? They carried out the motions. They brought the lambs. But nothing like this had occurred for 215 years with this spirit. See, very often what happens is when we, when we want more spiritually, we begin to um, plan and we begin to think that we can coordinate and we can cause these cause and effects to all happen and then that will lead to a successful revival. And if we think by carnal wisdom that we can orchestrate an act of God, we're missing one of the most fundamental points of the whole Bible. It is not him that willeth, nor him that runneth, that causes God to act. God is an omnipotent being, self-sufficient, that cannot be compelled to do a single thing. And what he wants is a people with no expectation that if they just get the formula right, that he'll bless them. And so they coordinate and they plan and they scheme and they, they look back to the past and they read books and they do. No, no. That's not how it comes. That's not how God's presence reinvigorates our church and our lives. It's people organically just saying, I want God. I want him in any way that he sees fit to come. I want him at any cost. Week, two weeks, six weeks, a year. I don't care what I have to do and how long I have to do it. Lord, I want to be in your presence. And that is sufficient blessing for all that I am giving to see it. Then. Days like this had not been seen since the days of Solomon. Then the Levites, excuse me, then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people. Listen to this part. This is the best part. Something Danny said on Wednesday night reminded me of this. Or reminded me of something Danny said on Wednesday night. And their voice was heard. By whom? Their voice was heard. Well, let's read. And their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. We just sang the song, Sweet Hour of Prayer. I suppose that I've spent, just like all of you, days worth of time in prayer throughout my life. In the sense of formally bowing and praying. And I would exchange... Every moment of my life.
for one sweet hour of prayer with God. One. But imagine it together. I've enjoyed sweet hours of prayer by myself with God. The only thing greater than being blessed is being blessed with the people around you. What compounds joy infinitely is not just me selfishly being blessed and reveling in that. It's when I can look around at you and yours and God is so abundantly overflowing His blessings that we are all being blessed. Not with stuff, not with promotions, not with cars, not with our kids' success. God's presence alone. And suddenly your flaws just seem to go away. You know that? Suddenly the prism, the tainted prism by which you see the world and all the sins and failings of the people around you, they just go away. And love in God's Holy Spirit is the prism through which you see the world around you and you see the brothers and sisters around you. And that God hears and God sees. Unfortunate, Hezekiah had Manasseh. You know? If you know anything about that, Manasseh is the worst thing that's ever happened to this world. I mean, really. He's up there with the Hitlers and Stalins. Evil as you can get, King Manasseh. But here's what I considered in that. You know what? I can't change the future as much as I can't change the past. I would rather go through spiritual deserts for the rest of my life that my children may live in an oasis. But I can't guarantee it. I can't always be looking to a brighter day. I can't always be hoping that things will get better someday. What I can do, what you can do, is look beyond the fear that comes with considering change and be a Hezekiah. Stand up before God, you and Him alone. Say, Lord, if anything's going to change in my heart, you're going to do it. And I want it. Here I am, a blank slate. Write on me, compel me, change me. And let me tell you something, that comes with terror when you lay yourself out before God. But when you get there, let me give you a piece of advice. Pray for courage. Pray that what God compels you to do, you will have the courage to do. Because it's terrifying. Scary to serve God, to lay your life down and say, wherever you lead me, I will follow. Because God goes to the worst of the darkness to shine His light. You don't get to celebrate all the time. You don't, talking to a young preacher recently, trying to remind him, listen, you can't run from mountaintop to mountaintop. The work of God is a lot of valleys, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And God gives you the mountaintop to encourage you, to send you back down to the valley. That you might plow and work and pray and labor and love 
people who are undeserving of love. Do you get my gist? And you go and you do those things because you know one day you're going to the mountain and you're never coming down. And so all this you can tolerate. And I love the valley. There's something, you know, that when I, I used to be a runner, when you run for a long time, after you've been doing it for a while, you get in these certain miles where it becomes strangely enjoyable. Like you're seven or eight miles in and you're hurting and you've hit wall after wall running and you've not slowed down and you thought you were going to slow down and you've not quit and you thought you were going to quit and you've talked yourself out of quitting for miles and miles. And there comes this place where you're saying, you know, this is kind of weird. I'm in a lot of pain, but I kind of like it. Why do I like it? Because I know the reward is ahead. I know when I get done from here, I'm going to be able to know in my heart, I conquered 10 miles. I conquered a half marathon. I conquered a marathon. And that is worth this. And I'm going to strangely delight in this. Because I know it is the means to get me there. And when you really commit yourself to the work of the Lord, it's terrifying and it's hard and it's painful. And there's valley after valley. And sometimes you don't even realize the valleys can go that deep. Like you think you know how bad the valleys get, but you don't. And you get there and you're in darkness and you're wailing alone. And then God visits you there. He holds you in the palm of his hand. And then you strangely delight to go to those places because you know, well, if I go there, the earthquake is shaking and anybody who touches this mountain is going to die, but I'm in the cleft of the rock. And I want to look at God, but I'm scared. And then you get down from there and you, you get idle and negligent and you start succeeding in the world and you say, this is it. Well, this is silly. This is empty. This is temporary. And you strangely say, Lord, I kind of want to go back to the battle. I used to feel that way in sports. Sometimes I get so dogged tired playing basketball. We had to sign. We'd assemble. We'd go like this. If we did that, that means the coach would take us out. And I'd be out for about 30 seconds. And I'd watch the play unfold. And I'd say, oh, i got to get back in there. got to get back in there. I'm not doing anything right here. That's how you win. Hezekiah, man. You know, he does some things later in life I wish he wouldn't have done. Man, I love what he did here. He can't change the future. He can't undo the past. But he stood up and he changed what he could. He led where he could. And listen, there are people following you. Young person, you may think nobody's following you. you. Listen to these cries this morning. Look around and see these little kids this morning. You think nobody's following you? They are. They're watching your mannerisms. They're watching your attitudes. They're listening to what you say when you testify a lot more than what I say when I preach and what these old people stand up when they testify and say. They're listening to you. And they're not hearing what you don't say. Let's see. What was it? Four kings later? Somebody will correct me on this, I'm sure. After Hezekiah was an eight-year-old boy named Josiah who became king. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And the kingdom followed him. He was eight. This morning, I pray God would 
strengthen us, would strengthen you in your own life. That if you need to change, do it. Do it. If it's monumental change and you're scared, and you need the help of your brothers and sisters because you stand up weeping and saying, I've built this citadel for 50 years, and I've guarded it. I've got a moat around it. I've protected this in my life. But I know I've got to give it up. Let us help you bear your burden. That's why we're here. It's not to emptily sing on a Sunday and and go about our merry way. It's more than that. That's our message this morning. I don't mean that to be... I'll tell you, the spirit of the message this morning is meant to be inspiring to you. Not condemning, not rebuking, inspiring to you. That if you follow his footsteps, it'll lead you to the right place. It'll lead us to the right place. Don't be afraid of change if God is in it. Look beyond that to what we will reap. That's our message this morning. Appreciate your attention today. Appreciate your forbearance using a version many of you don't have access to today. Somebody have something on your heart you'd like to say this morning before we change the order of service.